morning. Please open your Bibles to the Song of Songs. That may not be one you turn to very often. It comes right after Ecclesiastes and right before Isaiah. The Song of Songs will be looking mainly at uh, verse 1, but I'd like to read the first four verses this morning. So as, you, as you're finding your place there, let's stand together. And then we will we'll read that text and then pray for the Lord's help as we study. The Song of Songs beginning in verse 1. The Song of Songs which is Solomon's. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will exult and rejoice in you, We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray for your help this morning as we we always do. Primarily asking that you would move us to see how needful this book is, how needful it is in this world, how needful it is in the church, how needful it is in our homes and in our hearts. Pray, Father, that you would bring conviction and hope and joy as we take a a cursory look at this greatest of songs this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If, If we were to ask the average Christian... What's the greatest danger to marriage today? I wonder what they would say. What's the greatest danger to marriage today? I think the average Christian might say something like, well, it's, it's our culture's embrace of homosexual marriage. They might say, it's our culture's acceptance of all this gender fluidity. Gender confusion. They might say it's divorce and how rampant it's become. They might say those things. I would disagree with all of those answers. I do not think that any of those things are the greatest danger to marriage today. I think the greatest danger to marriage today is believers settling for passionless and therefore gospel-defaming Marriages. The greatest danger to marriage today is believers settling for passionless and therefore gospel defaming marriages. Christians in this country in recent years have staged a somewhat ironic stand for marriage, a stand that has that has said we're going to define marriage as a lifelong Commitment between one man and one woman. Of course, that's a good thing. That's what the Bible teaches. Marriage is only between a man and a woman, and it's to be a lifelong thing. I say that's an ironic stand because many Christians are fighting for this traditional definition of marriage while exhibiting a gospel-denying marriage in their own homes. So Rather than a marriage that commends the gospel, that is, that, that points others to this passionate, eternal fellowship that Christ enjoys with His bride, their marriages look just like all the Christless marriages of their friends and neighbors and co-workers. 
Many, many Christians claim a gospel that transforms people. They, they, they claim a gospel of a bridegroom who gave himself up to, to present to himself a bride spotless and without blemish. A gospel of a, a bride who gives herself completely to her groom. They claim to believe that gospel. And they claim to, say, to, to believe that that gospel is the only gospel that saves and sanctifies. And that transforms people. And then they live something completely different in their own marriages. That is why. That's why we're studying the Song of Songs. The song calls us to something better. Something delightful. Something that calls to the world and says, hey, look at this kind of love. Only the gospel can do this. Believe in this gospel. See, God, God has given the song to us for His glory and delightfully for our good. So this morning, I would like to just give you a brief introduction to this song what is it? What's it about? And what does it expect of us? All right. If you've got a bulletin on your way in, you already have the notes in front of you. But first of all, the song is about divine marital love. It's about divine marital love. Let's start with that first word, song. It's a song. That means it's poetry. All right. So that's going to affect how we interpret it. It's not historical narrative. It tells a story, but not like a typical narrative. It's not primarily conveying information. And for that reason, we're, we're not going to study the Song of Songs exactly the way that we would Exodus or Romans. These are, these are different kinds of books, and they communicate differently. They do different things inside of us, okay? Now, I want to, I want to follow one commentator's lead by reading to you a snippet of a poem and then reading to you the prose version. Okay? And, and I'll, I'll do my best to read this as a poet would. Alright? I don't read a lot of poetry. Except the Song of Songs. I've read it a lot. She walks in beauty like the night of cloudless climes and starry skies. And all that's best of dark and bright meet in her aspect and her eyes. Thus mellowed to that tender light which heaven to gaudy day denies. It's just beautiful language. Now here, here's the prose version. A woman in a black dress with shiny beads looked pretty when she walked by. And do, do they say the same thing? Kind of. Kind of, but when you hear the, the poem first, it, it almost seems criminal. To strip it down to just the information. So we've got two, two genres here that do different things in the reader. The latter imparts information. The former imparts longing. Alright? The Song of Songs is intended to impart longing. And if we take it apart like an engine, the way that we might Romans, and go straight to the nuts and bolts every week, we're going to miss what it's intended to do. It's intended to create longing in us. We're supposed to long for something as we read the song. All right? It's a song. It's a song about divine love. Divine love. This is the kind of love which in a fallen world only God is naturally capable. All right? This love in the song, it's His belongs to Him. It's from Him. He naturally loves this way. And if anyone else would love that way, they're going to have to be empowered by Him. I don't want to say too much about that right now. We'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll delve more into that a little bit later. But it's divine love. It's also marital. It's a song about divine marital love. It's clearly about a husband and wife. And it's clearly sexual. Alright? Now, I... I announced on the blog two weeks ago, I wanted to give everybody a heads up that, that this, is this, this is the book that we're studying next. Since I did that on the blog, has anybody read the Song of Songs since then? Just to kind of get a refresher as I see that hand. The... Alright. Might make you a little nervous once you read it and think that we're going to be reading this together and, and, uh, and studying it. But when you read the song, you, you, you see that this is, 
sexual language, right? Now, I've chosen the word marital instead of sexual because the love that's depicted in the song is not only sexual. The, the, these two in this song, they, they desire one another in every way. The, the, they have given themselves to each other completely. They're whole persons, not just their bodies. But their bodies are included. And, and marriage, as God has designed it, is inherently sexual. So sexuality, this gift of God, is the physical expression of the totality of the intimacy of marriage. It's the physical pleasure that comes from the uniting of two entire beings. And when two people have given themselves to each other completely, their hearts, their futures, their service, total monogamous commitment where the two are completely free to be vulnerable, that is when this smaller component, this sexual intimacy, is explosively pleasurable. It's the physical culmination of sharing everything that they are. And the more that they share of each other outside of that, the more that they share outside of that, the better that physical culmination will be. And that is why people who, that the people who fall for the devil's counterfeit, are, they're settling for tinker toys. And that happens to be one of the messages of the song, which speaks not only to married people, but also to those who are not. We'll get to that later as well. So this is a song. It does have a storyline. What is that storyline? Well, some commentators would say, many commentators would say, that it's about the engagement. It's initially the engagement of a man and a woman, and the building excitement as the wedding approaches. Then the, the consummation of that marriage on their wedding night. Then there's a lover's quarrel of sorts and then a reconciliation, and then that's followed by more physical and emotional intimacy. There are problems with that view, in my opinion, not the least of which is that it forces interpreters to do inconsistent things with the Hebrew verb tenses. And it forces them to insert dreams where the text does not warrant it. So I'm going to make the case, as we study, that this is a story about two people who are, who are already married. They're married from the beginning of the song. They're enjoying their marital prerogatives from the very beginning. They're not waiting for anything. Okay? These are not even necessarily newlyweds, as some of us might want to read it. They, they may be, but there's no reason to think that they have to be. Now, in, in the song, there is a spat of sorts and then a reconciliation. But big picture, this song is, is an idealized love story within a marriage. It's a, it's a married couple who are nuts about each other. I say it's idealized, meaning it's, it's like the picture of perfect love. It, it, is, it evokes Eden. If you, if you read commentaries on this, almost every commentary will point to all of the garden imagery that is intended to call our minds back to Eden, or we, we, we could say forward to Eden. This is love, this, this, this poem is love as God intended, all right? Now most of us who have been in church a long time, we're used to calling this, this book the song of what? Solomon, right? So what is Solomon's role? Is, is he the main character? Did, did, did he write it? Why would it be called Song of Solomon? Now, among conservative evangelicals, that is, people that we would be friends with, right? We would agree with them on all kinds of things. There is not widespread agreement on these questions about Solomon. Is he a character? Is he the main character? Did he write this? Most evangelical scholars don't agree on these questions, okay? So there's room for disagreement. In fact, there's room for disagreement on just about everything, in Song of Songs. I mean, this is, this is one of the most difficult to interpret books in the Old Testament. Maybe the most difficult to interpret. But first of all, let's talk about Solomon's role within the song. He is a character. I mean, he shows up numerous times. But is, is he the husband depicted in the song? I do not believe he is. There are two reasons that I say that he is not the husband. First of all, the text of the song itself does not support that idea. And second, what we know about Solomon from outside the song does not warrant the idea that he's the husband. So let's, let's take that second one first. 
What do we know about Solomon's love life from outside the Song of Songs? What do we know about his love life? It was disastrous. It was a disaster. The the first thing that the Bible says about Solomon's love life, we find in 1 Kings 3, verse 1. Listen to this. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. Now, if you know know what God has said to the people prior to coming to the land, you know that's a no-no. You can't do this. You can't marry somebody outside of Israel. And he did that. We might want to, to, to justify that as political expediency. God doesn't allow that. Now, we might say, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll give him a pass this one time. Well, it gets much worse, all right? L- listen to 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Now, if you've read the Song of Songs, you should be able to see what a stretch it is to view Solomon as this monogamous, committed, nuts about a Jewish shepherdess husband. It doesn't fit. Now, if, if he is, if we want to say, oh no, he's got to be the husband, then listen what we're forced to say. Within the context of Scripture, we're forced to understand him to be saying to the woman in this song, I have literally a thousand intimate partners, but baby, you're my favorite. Now, ladies, how, how, how would you receive this? How romantic. This does not work. It doesn't work. This this song is about monogamous. I'm nuts about you and only you. I've given myself. My beloved is mine. Mine. Not theirs. Mine. And I'm his. It doesn't work if it's Solomon. It doesn't work. And the Bible doesn't insult us like this. Expecting us to forget all of this other stuff. Plus the text of the song itself will not allow us to to hold that he is the husband. The song presents him as a foil for the monogamous love of the husband and wife. Okay? That is, he is he his presence in this story is for the purpose of presenting a contrast to the love exhibited by this husband and wife, highlighting how unique and wonderful their love is. We're going to see him show up at least a couple of times. And both times, it's to say, wow, look at him. Now look at what, how wonderful what they have is. So what about the question of authorship? Did, did Solomon write this song? Look at verse 1 again. The song of songs, which is Solomon's. There's... there's there's a number of ways to take that last clause. The, the Hebrew is a little bit ambiguous, but it could be understood to mean that which is to Solomon, which is for Solomon, which belongs to Solomon, which is about Solomon. So he could have written it. He could have written it, or somebody could have written it to or for him. I believe Solomon wrote this. I believe that he did write this. And there are several reasons for this. First of all, we know that Solomon was a prolific author. First, First Kings 4.32 tells us that he, he wrote 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. The, the, the Bible doesn't talk about anybody else being that prolific an author. How, how much sense would it be for the greatest song in the Bible to not be written about this greatest of authors? Second, it doesn't make sense that someone else would write this to or for Solomon. doesn't make sense. I mean, think, think about presenting that, this, this to him as a gift. How would that go? Here, Solomon, King Solomon, I have a gift for you. It's a song about, 
idealized love, and you play a very, very important role. Your disastrous love life is the black sky against which the, the blissful marital love of the main character shines. You are welcome. I, this does not make sense to me. But that, that might make us wonder, well, why would Solomon write something like this about himself? Well, that leads me to the third reason why I think he did. Solomon very honestly appraises his own failings in love elsewhere in Scripture. He does it elsewhere in Scripture. I think it makes sense that he would do it again in, in so- the song. Okay, His failure in love is implied in Proverbs, particularly in chapters 5 through 7, where he says in various ways, don't go after the forbidden woman. Trust me. Now that trust me part's not in the text, but if you know 1 Kings 11, you should understand that that's, that's there. Okay? He, he is the poster boy for chasing the forbidden woman. Right? That, that's why he's writing this to his sons. Don't go after the forbidden woman. But it's clearer in Ecclesiastes that he's, there's, there's, there's this mea culpa. Yes, I'm not the love guy. Okay? In, in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, which we studied together, some of you may remember, you were here long ago, if you were here that long ago. In, in chapter 2, Solomon wrote, I kept my heart from no pleasure. And, and he outlines all of these pleasures, among which are women. Okay, I kept my heart from no pleasure, and behold, all was vanity. It all ended up being meaningless nonsense. In 726 of Ecclesiastes, he wrote, I find something, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes from her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now you can hear in that, you can hear in that echoes of 1 Kings 11. Solomon's acknowledging, I've learned the hard way what love is and is not supposed to be. Solomon did not have an idealized picture of his own love life. He was honest about it. He was honest about it in Ecclesiastes. It makes sense that he's the best person to be honest about it in the Song of Songs. In the song, he's saying, don't be like me. Do not be like me. There is something so much better. So he holds out this, this song of divine marital love which we find, if we, if we look at it in the canon of all of, in, in the totality of Scripture, is exemplified by Christ in the church. That's the second part in your notes there. This is a song about divine marital love exemplified by Christ in the church. For about 1,800 years, interpreters viewed the Song of Songs as an allegory, an allegory about Christ in the church. That just means that they took virtually every little piece of this song and viewed it as a symbol for something else, a symbol for something in the gospel. Let me give you some examples. In, in chapter 1, verse 12, we read about the king on his couch. The king on his couch. One ancient commentator said, well, that's the gestation period of Christ in the womb of Mary. It's the gestation period of Christ in the womb of Mary. All the other interpreters said something else. But something about Christ. But but something different, okay? The next verse, which reads, My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. Now that, that received wildly different interpretations. One interpreter said, It's Christ between the Old and New Testaments. Now that's that's way more comfortable to preach. But it's a little bit of, of, of a stretch. Another interpreter, a few hundred years later, said, it's Christ in the soul of the believer who lies between the great commands to love God and one another. Now, you know, it's wonderful to point to Christ, but these things, exegetically speaking, that is, if we're looking to the text to point us where to go, these things are exegetically absurd. Because the, the text doesn't itself doesn't point us in these direct in this direction. Okay, this is not an allegory. The song is not an allegory. It's a song. It's a song about a man and a woman. All right. But these many hundreds of years of interpreters were right about this. They were right 
that this poem should be read Christologically. That is, it should be read in light of the coming of Christ, as should the whole Old Testament. Now, I want to give you some reasons why we should read the song Christologically, why we should read it in light of the coming of Christ. Several reasons. The first is the title of the song itself. This is this is the song of songs. This is, this is the Bible we're talking about here, okay? There's a lot written in the Bible. There are a lot of songs and poems in the Bible. But this one, this one is called the song of songs, which is the Hebrew way of saying this is the greatest song. This is the very best song. Now, do you think that the Bible, a book that is all about what God has done to glorify himself, by redeeming a people through the death, resurrection, and exaltation of his son, would call a song that is merely about human love, that he would call that the greatest song? I just don't think that that fits with what we find in the rest of Scripture. I think that the greatest song has to be, has to be about the gospel in some sense. All right? A second reason to read it Christologically, this is just how Jesus read the Old Testament. Jesus read the whole Old Testament Christologically. You remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus right after his resurrection? He's with those two guys. They don't know it's him, but he's explaining to them, look, you've got to understand the, the, the death of the Christ in light of all the Old Testament. Listen to Luke 24, 27. We, we, we read there, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things pertaining to himself. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things pertaining to himself. Now, should we understand or, or should we believe that there's an, there's an understood footnote there that says, well, not all the scriptures, just all of them except the Song of Songs. No, I, I don't think we, we, we should. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things pertaining to himself. We could add to that John 5.39 where Jesus said to the Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you find eternal life. It's these that testify about me. The scriptures testify about Jesus. What scriptures? The. The scriptures. He's talking about the Old Testament. That's, that's what scriptures he had at the time. They testify about Jesus. That's how Jesus viewed the Old Testament. It's about me, people. That's what Jesus is saying. That includes the Song of Songs. A third reason to view it Christologically, the New Testament authors. All the New Testament authors read the Old Testament Christologically. The New Testament authors understood the entirety of the Old Testament to point forward to Christ via prophecies and types and shadows. And while the song itself is never referenced in the New Testament, there is evidence that if it were, they would see Christ there. Let me, if you're taking notes, write down Psalm 45. Psalm 45. So I've got one homework assignment for you this week. Just one. All right. Read the Song of Songs this week at some point in its entirety. Don't try to break it up. Read the whole thing. And then read Psalm 45 all in one sitting. This will take you maybe 15 minutes. Read it all together. And if you read Psalm 45, you will most likely feel like you have just read a summary of the Song of Songs. They are so similar. The language is similar. The story is similar. It's unbelievable. Now, here's why I bring this up. The author of Hebrews, in his first chapter, quotes Psalm 45 and applies it to Jesus. The Old Testament authors read the Old Testament Christologically. They also repeatedly characterize Jesus as a bridegroom. The authors do it. The, the, the people that the authors talk about do it. John the Baptist, for example, called Jesus the bridegroom in John 3.29. Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.2 said, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He depicts Jesus as our bridegroom. We are his bride. Likewise, when, when the Bible, the New Testament, talks about the second coming and the consummation of the kingdom, it, the, it's characterized as what kind of a feast? A wedding feast in Matthew 22.2 and Revelation 19.7. But really the most obvious reason to, to read the song Christologically and to believe that the New Testament authors would do that is the passage in Ephesians 5.22 and following where Paul gives instruction to husbands and wives pointing to Christ in the church. 
as the preeminent example of a marriage. The last three verses of that passage, Pastor Jason read for us already this morning. I'm going to read two of those verses again. Ephesians 5.31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and, the two, and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now that last verse, verse, verse 32 is critical. The, this mystery is of marriage, this, this, this thing of a man and a woman, it's profound. It refers to Christ and the church. What that means is Paul is unable to think about the institution of marriage without his mind being drawn to Christ and the church, Christ and the church Jesus and his bride, as the original referent. It's not simply that Christ and the church are the example that husbands and wives follow, but all husbands and wives are a picture pointing to the original. See, our marriages are copies. Christ and the church is the original. A fourth reason to read the song Christologically is that marriage was the primary metaphor used of the relationship between God and His people in the Old Testament. See, this is not just a New Testament invention. It's the Old Testament as well. We find God as husband and Israel as bride all over the Old Testament. Now, now think about this. That's how God is depicted in the Old Testament. He is husband, Israel is bride. Then in the middle of the Old Testament, we have this grand poem about marriage. How much sense does it, does it make to leave that theme out of this book about marriage? It just doesn't make sense. If you're reading all of the Old Testament, you see over and over, God is husband, Israel is bride. You would just assume that this is here somewhere. God is the husband in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you just a few references, okay? A few references from the Old Testament. Now, this is just a smattering, okay? Because we just don't have time to cover them all. We'd be here all day. Isaiah 62.5. Isaiah 62.5. Ezekiel 16.7 and 8. Ezekiel 16, 7 and 8. Jeremiah 2, 2. Jeremiah 2, 2. Jeremiah 2, 19 and 20. Jeremiah 2, 19, 20. Another word from Isaiah. Isaiah 54, 5 through 8. Isaiah 54, 5 through 8. This is just how the Bible conceives of God and His people, Christ and the church, marriage. The fifth reason to read the song Christologically is that the text of the song itself has Christological pointers. All right? The husband in this song is a shepherd king. He's a shepherd king. Now that doesn't fit Solomon. Solomon was not a shepherd. He was a king, not a shepherd. The New Testament depicts Jesus as a shepherd king. More important, though, is what we find in the, the very last chapter of the song, in, in chapter 8, verse 6, which reads, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is as fierce as the grave. Listen to this. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of Yahweh. See, the, the passion of Love, the, the passion depicted in the song, is the very flame of Yahweh. This love that the song talks about is from Yahweh. It's His. Now taken all together, all of these things that I've just mentioned should more than justify a Christological reading of this book. And it, it's my view that the Old Testament can only be rightly understood in light of the New Testament. So, we can and should take an Old Testament book and, and look at it in, in light of its genre, its historical context, its context within the Old Testament canon, but it can only be fully understood in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus casts the fullest light on Old Testament books, and that certainly is the case with the Song of Songs. Now, if you have ever read the Song of Songs, would you raise your hand if you've ever read it? Okay, now for some of us it may have been a long time. But what, 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 what does it do inside of us when we read it? Some of us it just embarrasses the hound out of us. Others of us, this idealized picture of, of marital love, it, it, it moves us to say, I can't do that. I, I, can't, 
I can't love someone as if they're perfect when I know they're not, which is exactly what the husband does in the song. I can't do that. I can't enjoy ecstatic, free passion with somebody who has hurt me, which is exactly what the husband does in the song. I can't be so perfectly virtuous and therefore irresistible that my spouse would risk life and limb to to pursue me into the darkness, which is exactly what the husband in the song is. I can't be that. You see, we, we come to the song and we read this idealized picture of love. We say, this is impossible. I can't be this. I can't do this. And the natural man, the person who is still in Adam, dead in their sins, they are right to think that way. The the fall completely twisted up that beautiful Edenic union of a man and woman. Sin entered their hearts in, in such a way that they are bent against one another. It's part of the curse itself for a man and woman to struggle against one another, to contend with one another. We see this playing out in in the rest of the storyline of the Old Testament. We see it playing out in history. Many of us have seen it play out in the homes that we grew up in. Many Many of us see it playing out in our marriages right now. We can't do this. We can't be this. And the Holy Spirit, the the grand author of, of Scripture, would say to us, well, let me show you one who can, who has who does and is, it's Jesus Christ, the righteous, the bridegroom. Jesus gives himself completely to his bride. He did this on the cross, pouring out his blood to make her his and to make himself hers. He's withheld nothing of himself from her. We've seen this over and over in John, have we not? He, He has loved us as if we were flawless, even though we're not. He's like the husband in the song. Even though we fail him, though though, though we sin against him, he eagerly reconciles with us and then enjoys passionate fellowship with him. With us, no matter how many times we wrong him, he forgives and then gives himself to us. He considers himself ours. He's like the husband in the song. And, And Jesus is so perfectly loving and virtuous, that those who belong to him are willing to pursue him into the night, to risk all, risk life and limb, to follow him. All of church history testifies to this, as as countless thousands have walked to the gallows, have been burned at the stake, for the sake of knowing greater fellowship with this ultimately desirable bridegroom, Jesus Christ. He's like the husband in the song. He pours out himself to make us his, and to make himself ours. You, you know, the, the more that I read this song Christologically, the more it gives such rich meaning to the words of this song. My beloved is mine. I am his. This is my beloved and this is my friend. Jesus is like the husband of the song. That's not to say that Jesus is the husband of the song, and I'll make that case as, as we go along. The husband is an idealized husband who loves with a divine love. But this husband in the song, he doesn't even love as well as Jesus does. The love in this song is exemplified by Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the kind of love that we see in the song. And Jesus empowers others to live this way, which brings us to the next part of our our notes. This is a song about divine marital love, exemplified by Christ in the church, and emulated by husbands and wives. Emulated by husbands and wives. Jesus not only exemplifies the love of the song, but he fixes us so that we can love like the song. That is such good news. That's such good news. There are people in this room, you think that you're hopelessly broken. You think your marriage is hopelessly broken. The gospel says to that, Nonsense. That is nonsense. That brokenness of the fall is reversed in Christ. That's what Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 teaches. We were dead in our trespasses and sins 
enslaved to various passions, enslaved to living for ourselves, the devil, the world, and the flesh. But, but listen to me. You who, you who are living in passionless marriages, you who are living in marriages that are filled with, with unreconciled hurt, God rescued us in Christ and raised us to live differently. He rescued us from the penalty of our sin, which is hell, and He rescued us from the power of our sin so that we can live differently in this life. Ephesians, Ephesians 2.10 says that He created us in Christ for good works, right? And if we turn just three chapters over in Ephesians, we find that among those good works are the ability to live as husband and wife, as do Christ in the church. Christ and the church exemplify this ideal love of the song. And Paul teaches that because of that Ephesians 2 gospel, we are enabled and called to emulate Christ and the church in our marriages. Listen to Ephesians 5.24. As the church submits to Christ in everything, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That's not a pipe dream. That's a command based upon the reality of the gospel. You can do that. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's not a pipe dream. That's a realistic command based upon the gospel. Paul actually expects us to do this because of what Jesus does in us. And only believers can do this because only believers have been rescued from the curse and the havoc that it wreaks on human relationships. So, with the gospel at work in us, the Holy Spirit would take us to the song and say, hey, you see this love that loves another as if they're flawless even though they're not? This love that, that forgives even when it's been wronged, and you've been wronged by your spouse, have you not? You see that kind of love? You see this kind of lover who is so virtuous and delightful that the spouse is drawn irresistibly to follow them at the risk of life and limb. You see that kind of love? You are capable of being that and doing that because Christ has dedicated Himself from eternity past to eternity future to sanctifying you and turning you into His image. You are able to be this. And when you commit yourself to this, it's delightful. Just look at the two people in this song. It's delightful. You, you believers, you can live the love of the Son. You can. But here's an even more important thing to keep in mind. Not, not only can you, you are obligated to. You are obligated to. Now why would I say that? 2 Corinthians 5.15 Along with those verses I quoted from Ephesians 5, I would add to it 2 Corinthians 5.15, which reads, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus did not save you so that you could then go your own way, do your own thing. He saved you to be His. You exist for His purpose. You belong to Him and your marriage belongs to Him. Listen very closely to this. You don't have the right to settle for a miserable marriage. Because you don't belong to you. You don't have the right to have a passionless marriage. You don't belong to you. Your marriage is God's and He wants it to burn with mutual pleasure. And we're not just talking about sex here. We're talking about mutual pleasure that comes from enjoying one another in Every way. The, the, the world would love to shrink that down to just sex. The Bible says, no, there's more than this. It is that, but it's more. It's more. But listen, the gospel that we proclaim fixes the mess that the fall made of, of the world, including the mess that the fall made of marriage. The Bible teaches this. And when believers like us, when we are content with worldly marriages, where years of hurt stifle the passion and vulnerability and joy, we live as if we're still an atom. And we defame the gospel. To, to, to borrow Paul's words from Titus 1.16, we claim to know God, but we deny Him by our marriages. May it never be. Your marriage 
should be the most powerful thing in your life, attracting people to the gospel that you proclaim. The people around you should look at your marriage and say, these two people, look at them. They, they adore each other in spite of how they have hurt each other. And in spite of their physical and non-physical imperfections, they just want to eat each other up. How is this possible? Especially in this world where nobody stays together, and if they do stay together, it turns into a lifelong cold war. How is this possible? Oh yeah, they, they preach this gospel. That gospel must be true because they're the only ones like this. On the other hand, a loveless, passionless marriage riddled with bitterness. What does that say to those around you about the gospel that you say you believe? This, 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 sh- this should go without saying. It says that gospel's nonsense. It's obviously not changed them. They're just like everybody else. Listen, Jesus rescued us from our sin and death and imminent wrath. And I truly believe that with the Song of Songs, He wants to rescue some in this room from miserable gospel-denying marriages. He He wants to take us somewhere better. And not by calling us to pretend something, but by calling us to believe the gospel, to believe the gospel, and then live it out with one another and enjoy the fruit of that in our marriages with one another. Now, very quickly, this leads naturally to what the song expects of us. Very quickly, three, three, three final points. The song calls us to passionate fellowship with Christ. It calls us to passionate fellowship with Christ. The song calls us to enjoy the reality of our belonging to Christ and His belonging to us. I am my beloved's and He is mine. Married, single, young, old, all of us will be blessed by this study of the song for that reason. It calls us to passionate fellowship with Christ. The song also calls us to passionate fellowship within our marriages. Within our marriages. It calls us to commend the gospel by enjoying the same passionate giving and receiving in marriage that we see in the marriage of Christ and His bride. Third, the song calls us not to waste our sexuality. The song calls us not to waste our sexuality. Not all that this song says speaks to married people. There's a refrain over and over in this song that speaks to those who are not married. So, so all of us, all of us are going to be called by this song to follow God's design for sexuality. And to the single person, the repeated call will be, Don't trade away your future bliss by settling for something less right now. It's going to call all of us. It's going to hold hold this wonderful thing out to us and say, look look at this. This is what God has. Do not listen to the nonsense of the world that holds out this counterfeit that, that is nothing but bitterness and heartache. Take this. And if you're not married yet, wait for this. It is worth it. The woman in the song That is her message. Wait for this. It's worth it. What's the greatest threat to marriage? What is the greatest threat to marriage? We could ask a different question. I'm going to ask a different question. It's got the same answer. A different question is, what's the greatest impediment to the credibility of the gospel in our day? What's the greatest impediment to the credibility of the gospel in our day? It's believers settling for passionless, gospel-denying marriages. Believers settling for passionless, gospel-denying marriages. May it never be here at PBF. Some of you, some of you may, may be demoralized about where your marriage is. I would just say that, listen, the Bible teaches that, that broken things, this is Jesus' business. This is what He does. He fixes things. Now maybe maybe you have a you have a, a marriage that is already over. It's ar- it's already over. You, you you've been left. You've been divorced. That 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 broken heart. Listen, he fixes these things, fixes them, and now calls you to passionate fellowship with him. And he is enough. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. The song has something for you. 
as we, as we submit to Him in these things, our lives will reflect the gospel that we proclaim. Passion for Christ, passion in marriage. Let us give ourselves to this as people who love the gospel. Let's pray. Father, Paul is concerned, is concerned that just as the serpent deceived Eve, that the Corinthians also would be led away from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I have a, I have a similar concern right now, Lord, that, that the enemy would try to snatch the truth out of our ears and hearts in the coming moments by convincing each one of us that for one reason or another, this does not really pertain to us. This does not really pertain to me. I'm too old. This does not really pertain to me. I'm single. This does not pertain to me. I'm, I'm widowed. does not pertain to me. I've been hurt so much. Father, would you bind the liar from us and help us to hear only truth, only the Holy Spirit speaking truth to us as he calls us to something better. So Father, where we have settled for something less than what you've designed, please bring conviction and right on the heels of it, Father, bring hope as we remember that Jesus fixes broken things. What a wonderful bridegroom he is. And would you please, as we study this song, cause us to grow in fiery passion for him. We ask in his name. Amen. Let us stand and sing together.